Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Uh hey, excuse me. Is this because of that thing? Uh, should I go somewhere? You should go home. Hello and welcome to The Plays The Thing. This is a special episode that is kind of tangentially related to Shakespeare. We're actually going to talk today about a book and a series, Station Eleven, and I'm joined today by my friend, Josiah Martins. I'll tell you more about Josiah Martins in a second. So the book, Station Eleven, and the series, Station Eleven, are both based on, well, they're they're based on the book by Emily St. John Mandel, and the book book relates to Shakespeare because it's about a kind of post-pandemic world in which a group of traveling actors goes from outpost to outpost in this kind of like harrowing post-pandemic world, performing Shakespeare and also performing Bach, at least in the book they're performing Bach. And my friend Josiah Martins is on with me. I wanted Josiah to come on first because he and I have done a lot of collaborations on theater in the past. He is, he's basically the set maker for two plays that I have done, one in Eugene and one in Seattle. And I just like talking with him about most everything. And I think we might end up having kind of different points of view about Station Eleven, which is always exciting to hear kind of like two different points of view. So, okay. All that being said, hi, Josiah, and welcome to the show. How are you? I'm great. Good to see you. You're coming to us from Eugene, Oregon. Eugene, Oregon. What's the weather like there? It is delightfully sunny. Change of Is it really? Yeah, from the drizzle we've been having. How warm? It's still pretty chilly. It's still pretty chilly? Yeah, it's probably, you know, 40s. I remember when I was in Eugene, a fellow friend of ours who was born and raised in Eugene said, this is before I had been like living in Eugene very long. He said, yeah... For basically eight months, Eugene is not a great place to live. And then the four months of summer just make you forget about the other eight months because they're so wonderful. The shoulder seasons are fun in their unpredictability. I've never appreciated sunlight as much as since Uh, I've lived here. Yeah, yeah. Josiah, let's talk about Station Eleven. We had really different experiences. So I'll set it up and correct me if I get any of this wrong. My first experience with Station Eleven was I read the book. My friend Lisa Ann Cockrell recommended the book to me. She said, it's about a Shakespeare troupe in like a pandemic world. And we were right in the middle of COVID. And I thought, oh gosh, I've got to read it. 
I went out, I got the Audible version, and I blazed through it. And I love the book. I absolutely love the book. You started in a different place. I watched the series first, uh, recommended to me by a mutual friend of ours. And I absolutely loved the series and told you about it. And then you told me about the book, which I read or I listened to the same audible version. And so we sort of met in the middle. I I suggested the series to you and you watched the series, I believe. Yes. Yep. I did. I did. I finished it about a week ago. Okay. Let's talk first about the series, the HBO Max series. I think it's 10 episodes. The timing of it, I think, was perfect. COVID restrictions are lifting across the country. There's this real sense that hopefully the pan- the worst of the pandemic is behind us. And here comes this series about a particular character who begins the series as a young woman and she kind of gets saved out of, she, she was a young actor in King Lear. And in the very first episode, the main actor in King Lear, the, the guy playing Lear, dies. And, in, and shortly after his death, chaos begins to kind of like sweep over Chicago, which is kind of home base for the beginning of the book in the movie. And this young woman, she's, I don't know, how old do you think she is? 11, something like that? Eight? Okay. She gets taken by a kind of like stranger. And basically they tried, the stranger tries to get her home. Her parents are not responding. And the rest of the series and the rest of the book kind of follows her as she um, like figures out life after this massive pandemic. Okay. One of the things that she does is she falls in with a troupe of actors, Shakespearean actors and musicians, and they play what they call, they play the wheel. There's this kind of like circle of different townships that crop up in during, you know, like the 10, 15, 20 years after the pandemic. And they are like an old traveling theater troupe and they perform different Shakespeare plays. She's oftentimes the lead and they are confronted by this prophet character. And the book, that is the main crisis of the book is, okay, this prophet character seems to kind of be a real threat to the existence, the welfare of the Shakespeare troupe. How are we going to deal with this prophet and his cult-like following? The movies are a little different. The series is a little bit different. Is is that, I mean, is that still the crisis of the series, the prophet, do you think? It's set up like that in the beginning, for sure. But the series, yeah, it takes a much different turn than the book. There's there's a number of, of differences, some of which I I greatly preferred in the series, some of which I, I mean, I like the way the book handled some things, like the way yeah. the series handled some things. Um, but the way they handled the prophet was, I don't know, I actually, I, there was, hmm, the book had some narrative simplicity to it that was, um, you know, the, the prophet is the main, uh, or how, how do we feel about spoilers here? I think, yeah, I think let's, let me say this right now. I think we're both going to like end up recommending the book and the series. I am going to really recommend the book. You're going to really recommend the series. If you don't want to know what happens, I think you need to press pause or stop. And I think you need to come back to this podcast later because we're just going to do spoilers. I I thought they, they were wonderful counterpoints to each other. Um, I, I think that they hit a lot of, you know, a narrative emotional points, uh, very uniquely, and I, I, I liked, I liked the, the the unit of them them both. Back to the prophet, the in the book, the you know the crisis and the sort of the end of the book ends is with the death of the prophet. And in the series, the prophet has more of a redemption arc, and I it seems like the 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 theme, the main crisis of um, it's not even well, the tension in the series is this uh, sort of 
is that one of the, the phrases that comes up a lot is that survival is not enough. Mm. Um, and you have a, in some respect, respects, a very brutal world uh, after the, you know, uh, when 99.9% of uh, humanity dies in the pandemic and you have a, just a, all like the, the carcass of civilization that just this, this very bare remnant of humanity is trying to live within. And there's a lot of uh, brutality and um, danger. And you never, anytime you encounter somebody, you're not sure if this is a potential friend or somebody who's going to kill you and take your stuff. And in that kind of environment, the temptation is to just go for sheer survival and uh, this this notion that there's that there, there is a a value to keeping you know artistic tradition alive, keeping Shakespeare alive, keeping music alive. Uh, this mm-hmm. tra- tradition of uh, you know Western composition is uh, one of the you know other focuses of the Traveling Symphony, and that the uh, um, the tension between survival. Or the I don't know the I guess the the complexity of surviving while also keeping these alive and these uh, artistic manifestations these artistic artifacts alive um, that's that's sort of where I see the uh, um, most of the interest in the in the yeah. in the series. I've got a question, and the question is: Did the series of the book make you make you think? Okay. If I survived something like this, what would be the thing that I would most want to preserve? And let me, while you think about that, let me say this um, to everyone who's listening. Josiah is, does a little bit of everything or maybe a lot of everything. Uh, He is a musician He's a builder. I mean, I think like the kind of common nomenclature is a maker. He makes anything that needs to be made, corporate or private. Um, You've built out sets in our collaborations together. And so you're someone who I'm sure has put a lot of thought into, like, what are the real valuable things that you would want? What are the the human artifacts that, that, you would really want to see preserved, you know, that you really think are worth carrying on from 2022 onward. Did the series of the books make you think, here's what I would want to preserve? That's always, that's one of my, that's one of my favorite aspects of uh, anything apocalyptic or post-apocalyptic is the, the, the material aspect of it, how, <laughs> Um, what, what, uh, you know, um, how people like whether there's a, you know, they're starting from total scratch or they're, they're sort of harvesting pieces of infrastructure as they can. Everything's breaking down. You don't have any of Mm -hmm. the, um, you know, industrial manufacturing processes available anymore. You have to rediscover old, um, old ways of being like there's everything's horse powered all of the gasoline goes stale in a couple years and so they yeah. have these these uh these trucks and cars and vans being pulled by 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 teams of horses and honestly i think the i mean this is kind of a cliched answer but the most valuable resource in those times is uh is community is having having a, mm. a group of people around you because no matter what you what what you save it's going to wear out and no matter how competent and skilled you are you're there's going to be gaps in your knowledge and gaps in your capacity even if so i say hypothetically there are no gaps in your knowledge you only have so many hours of waking life to yeah. do work in and and the anything approaching the complex uh see the complexity of a society that is needed to produce works of art like Shakespeare or a Bach composition there, those um, even though those are, you know, hundreds of years old, the complexity of society required just thousands and thousands of people doing all sorts of different jobs. And so, yeah, that plus the sort of the community needed to keep a tradition alive, to keep some sort of um, institutional memory of what it is like to put on a play, what it is like to, uh, perform, let alone compose. 
uh, you know, a piece of music like that, that's a, a memory that can only be held by a, by a body of people. Um, yeah. So that, that's, yeah. that's the first place my brain goes, but you know, they're also, nobody really knows how to make a violin from scratch or a guitar from scratch. So all right. of these, all of these instruments, the, all of these, these tools, some, some simple tools can be, you know, blacksmith forged, I think is the correct verb. I mean, that's, that's still like a very complex science, but it, it's, it's a little easier to kind of um, kickstart, you know, uh, some blacksmith knowledge again, than it is to sort of figure out how to, how to make a, <laughs> make a violin, let alone play it and compose yeah. it. And, and um, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Forging a knife is one thing. A pipe organ. That's of a completely different oh, yeah. order. Yeah. A pipe organ, like would just, it would not be, you could not make a pipe organ again if you had, you know, a 99.9% death rate after a pandemic. You could try to preserve a pipe organ. Um, but the preservation of a pipe organ is a communal effort also. Right? The tuning of a piano is a communal effort also. I think what's so fun about the book and the series, they are both very imaginative about how, I'm just going to say the same thing that you've said in different language, how many hands are required to maintain the kind of population of human artifacts that we have our disposal and we absolutely take for granted and we use them every day. And if our phone doesn't work for five minutes, you get like upset. Oh my gosh, what is going wrong? I've got to reboot my phone. What's going wrong out there? You know, and to see a world just completely stripped bare of all those things, it's such an imaginatively demanding task. And I think the author did really, really well. And I think that the set dressers on the series did really, really well. Oh, yeah. And I suspect, if I know you, I suspect that was one of the things that you most enjoyed about the series. Yeah. Yeah. The uh, um, production design was fantastic. Totally. Yeah. T say why. What were the things that stood out to you? So the, the most of the post-apocalyptic um, storytelling that happens is about, I think, 20 years after mm. the after the pandemic post pan in the uh in, in the <laughs> in world nomenclature and so you have a you know it's it's hard to find a pair of shoes that haven't already been used or uh you know used into uselessness or mm. uh you know have are starting to rot just just because of the passage of time there were a couple of kind of goofy inaccuracies the the prophet has this brass lighter that he uh he plays with and he, oh yeah and he flicks it and it turns on and there's no way that a lighter fluid would still be good after 20 years um huh so i don't know maybe they distilled lighter fluid from uh crop and turned like made some sort of alcohol i don't, I don't know if that's kind of what they were thinking but yeah there was seems some unlikely though yeah seems a little unlikely um yeah take a lot of input to make that happen for something that's a pretty like secondary yeah feature uh yeah the the so there's there's a <laughs> i think the main character has a has like a child's backpack that has just because it's it's the right size in in the book it's a spider-man backpack i think in the in the show it's uh just some sort of cheap multicolored backpack that somehow has has survived 20 years and yeah. is uh small enough and useful enough to um you know, be an everyday carry kind of pack. And, oh man, I don't know. I am having trouble picking apart one exact feature just because, I mean, all, they're the, all of the buildings that, that, that they use were, you know, surrounded by overgrown plants and, but like everybody still is, um, is using them, but there's, there's, uh, I don't know, roofs that, that, that have, have failed. And once a roof fails, the whole building starts to fall apart. Like, and, mm -hmm. um, I don't know, at, at some places you have to kind of, you know, strain your credulity a bit to imagine that, say, a golf cart, like the batteries on a golf cart would still be working or stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, like yeah, I was, yeah. I was yeah. thinking very, uh, <laughs> very like, uh, I was thinking along those terms the whole time I, I was watching it, but stylistically. And, the, and, 
when you had those moments, like the golf cart rolls up and whatever, episode six, in that moment, are you like, what? They wouldn't have the fuel for it. Or do you think afterwards, after you've walked away, do you think, huh, I'm not so sure. Um, I think I, I notice it pretty quickly, but yeah. it's, it's a, it's pretty, uh, uh, it's a pretty petty observation. It's not, it doesn't really, uh, um, it, it may, maybe it subtracts like very, in a very minor way from the realism of, of the show, but it's, uh, uh, um, wasn't a mission critical failure in yeah. my experience. Yeah. I thought that the series was beautiful. It was actually my favorite thing about the series, aside from maybe a couple of the actors. I thought even like the Shakespeare costumes that they put together, yes. some of those were just really exotic. And, you know, I remember like kitchen gloves being used, like sewn into one of the costumes. And it gave this just kind of very surreal kind of look to it. And I thought, I, I love that about the series. Yeah. Um, Every pretense towards historical accuracy was completely abandoned. Gone. Uh, just, it was, yeah, it was very, uh, I don't know, like impressionistic or, or uh, um, expressionist, yeah. expressionistic, I, yeah. I, I guess. I think yeah. expressionistic. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, let's talk about some of the big differences between the book and the series. I'll ask you what ones stood out to you the most. We mentioned that the prophet is a different sort of character and he does have a much more redemptive kind of turn at the end of the series. And yeah, this is the spoiler alert. His demise is one of the major concluding plot points of the book. The other big difference to me that stood out was that the relationship between the female lead, Kirsten, she is rescued and kind of like saved by, is it Jivan? Jivan is how it is in the show. And that's a real, it's like a major relationship. Maybe it's the spine relationship in the entire series. And it's not really spoken of very much at all in the book. No, they have their initial meeting on stage at the King yeah. Lear performance, and that's yeah. it in the book. That's it. Um, and in the series, yeah, that that was that was brought me to tears a couple of times. It was uh-huh. one of one of the most powerful aspects of the show. I thought was the relationship between this uh, this stranger who semi reluctantly agrees to take this to take this girl home because the whole world like the plays in chaos at the death of the lead actor and meanwhile the whole city is starting to fall apart like the very night yeah. of the performance and so the person who isn't responsible for this little girl can't be found and so he agrees to try to to take her home but then her parents aren't there and um, he sort of is as a shifts from feeling stuck with her. And sort of like this kind of grudging obligation to really, you know, caring about her. And, and, uh, but then yeah, also, like, why did I get stuck with you? Why did I get mm-hmm. stuck with you? Like, why, you know, where are your parents? Yeah. He's it's begrudging is the right word. But then at the same time, she is, is, you know, she's a, like a pretty remarkable character for an eight year old girl as able to take it all, take this whole collapse of the world and in, in stride, but still she's traumatized by the, the sudden death of her parents and the, that like the death of everybody she knows, except from this stranger who she just met. And he's, mm-hmm. uh, he's softened by, you know, what must be her experience in this. And it's just a really, really beautiful, um, beautiful relationship between this really like this, this flawed man who actually is struggling to, this is something I resonated with somebody who's struggling to, get any traction in the world as it was before the pandemic. And after the pandemic kind of finds a calling as a, as a doctor, as a healer. Um, and in a world that's just in desperate need of pretty much everything healing and building and, um, any, anything, uh, yeah. Anything that's not just like, uh, it's in need of people that aren't just out for their own immediate survival at all costs. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, his it be in the series. His brother is a is he a Pulitzer winner mm-hmm. for journalism, mm-hmm. and his sister is this high powered 
she's a nurse, I think, in like one of Chicago's major mm-hmm. metropolitan hospitals. And he's just kind of stumbling. He doesn't really know where he's going. And he's at King Lear with his girlfriend. And his girlfriend just kind of leaves. He, he goes to help the little girl. And then his girlfriend, he finds out just like, ah, I just went home. And so even romantically, he's, he's just kind of struggling. And by the end of the series, yeah, he has found a calling and he's a man with like real purpose and capacity. And I think the reunion between him and Kirsten at the conclusion of the series was just magnificent. They hadn't seen each other in how long? 15 years, maybe? Yeah, I I thought that was a beautiful, beautiful moment. Yeah, um, yeah. I think my other favorite scene, I'm going to ask you what, if you had a favorite scene or two in the series. I think my other favorite scene was when they are at the supermarket and they know that the pandemic is arriving. And so they decide they're going to fill up grocery carts with all of the groceries that they can possibly lay hands on because they feel like, man, we might be locked down for a while. And they were. And so they're checking out with like eight grocery carts and the guy who's checking them out, remember the guy, like this kind Mm -hmm. of, I don't know, he's 20 years old. He's working like a side job, it looks like. And he can't figure out why they're checking out with eight grocery bags or eight grocery carts of stuff. And what is, I can't remember exactly what he says, but it's something like, is this because of that thing? And the response is something like, you need to go home. Yeah. <laughs> and I think he does shortly after that. He goes home. Uh-huh. They're struggling in a snowy parking lot with eight grocery carts, and he's he just kind of abandons his post and <laughs> yeah. starts running home. Yeah. Yeah. And he's probably not one of the survivors. Anyway, anyway, I just thought it was so wonderful because I remember. I'm sure you've got a COVID memory also. I was out at a restaurant with my friend Crystal and we were sitting at the bar in Seattle and the bartender comes up to us. And of course, everybody's kind of talking about COVID. And we said, have you heard anything? And he said, yeah, they're talking about, we're not going to come into work tomorrow. And my friend and I were like, what? Really? You're not going to come into work tomorrow? Because remember, Seattle is the first North American city that got hit really hard. Because there was an outbreak in a nursing home. So we were at the absolute front edge of it. And I remember we were kind of surprised that he was, you know, talking about they're not going to bring him in tomorrow. And we were like, I bet you'll be in tomorrow. And then while we were sitting there, he said, we're not coming to work tomorrow. Like the governor just shut us down. And I remember that was the moment I was like, okay, this is a really big deal. And now it's on, you know, the mainland of North America everything's going to change now. Everything's going to change. Yeah. What is that? Um, that? That moment was so scary. What was that moment for you? Oh man. I didn't have one quite as stark as that. It was slightly more gradual, but not much. It just, it was, uh, I had just left a job and was just starting to think of like before the pandemic, you know, really, really hit. And yeah, I was just starting to think about my next steps. So I was, I was looking at a, um, I was already at home, kind of on my computer, looking at other jobs, looking at other options. And um, and every time I kind of stepped outside to get coffee or something, just things were in a in a uh, in a more progressed state of being shut down. And all of a sudden, like everything was everything was yeah. shut down. Everything was closed. Nobody was on the street. Everybody was literally locked up in, in their houses. We didn't know if it spread outside. We didn't know anything. Yeah, we didn't know anything. Um, didn't we thought like, we thought it still was transmissible on surfaces. Um, yeah. And so it was just, was this, uh, you know, it felt like, like, I mean, everybody was calling it an apocalypse, but um, mm-hmm. <laughs> it was, it was, a, it was a pretty, uh, at least compared to, the literary standards we're looking at right now is it, it was a very yeah. gen- gentle apocalypse. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. Um, yeah. This wasn't yeah. Uh, the bubonic plague of, you know, whatever, 1299 or yeah. anything like that, but still, yeah. I mean, a lot of people lost their lives. I, I sound like I was laughing at COVID. It was not, <laughs> it was not funny, but it was compared to what we're reading about in the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Light fair. 
Yeah. It's not fair. One of the striking features of the Station Eleven story is how the modern world is in full swing and then all of a sudden it just stops. So you have mm. people traveling. You have there's one whole kind of narrative chunk about uh, the sort of jumps around between both in time and across space. There's there's the Museum of Civilization. Yeah. That's how it's called. Um yeah. and that's a a uh contingent of people at this isolated airport, none of whom are from there, um, or at least very few of whom are from there. Um, so you have somebody who is, you know, it was, it was like a friend of the actor who died in, in King Lear and he's traveling to go and be the executor of his friend's estate. And I think he was flying from London or something um, or New York at least. And all of a sudden he's stranded at this airport and like, he can't go back to his loved ones. He can't go back to like anything. His whole life is somewhere else completely. And Mm -hmm. he's completely cut off from that for the rest of his life. It just, and there, there's a whole, um, yeah, like this whole airport is full of people like that. And it kind of, it, uh, I can't help, but when I, I can't help but travel now and feel, you know, really vulnerable to that, like who knows I don't know. Maybe it's probably a little over paranoid, but it's a, it was just, there's really something I haven't thought about before. I always assumed I could get home, right? You go somewhere. And even if, you know, something strange happens, eventually you'll get home. Like say something like nine 11, like planes were grounded for a little while. It was this huge world changing yeah. event, but everybody eventually goes yeah. back to where they're from. Um, yeah. Anyways, that, that was a really striking, you know, post-apocalypse kind of scenario that I hadn't really encountered before in the other, other stories of this ilk. Yeah. 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 I, I, I think that is one of my favorite things about the series. Okay. But just, I got to tell you now, Mm -hmm. I of course was kind of shaped by the book because I read the book first and I started watching the series first three or four episodes. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm hooked. It's so, it's just so good. The acting was so good. I thought visually it was just sumptuous and rich. I, whoever their director of photography was, presuming it was one person the whole time, the, direct, the direction of photography I thought was exemplary. And then halfway through the series for me, the wheels just came off and I I ended up just like laboring through the last four or five episodes and I think my complaint about the series has everything to do with how they shaped the profit plot in the book the prophet is this menacing figure that you kind of know you've got to deal with because he's he's clearly like running some sort of a community-wide cult and he's dangerous and the cult that follows him is dangerous and the traveling troupe has got to kind of like stay out of his clutches. I felt like they redeemed the prophet character um, at the end of the series, but I completely lost what his menace in the series, because in the series, he is sending out kids with bombs to blow up certain survivors. I mean, he's this almost kind of demonic character. And then Kirsten meets up with him and she's there to kill him. She's there to kind of put him down. Let's put a stop to this. No more kids blowing up bombs, you know, with like survivors. And for some reason, she decides... She's not going to kill him. The reasons that she decides she's not going to kill him, I, I didn't understand. I, I mean, like, okay, maybe she felt a little bit empathetic, but I didn't really see that. And I completely lost track of who the prophet was and what he was about. Did I miss something? Help I, me. Um, I also found the that that sort of evolution of the prophet's story to be yeah. very uh uninteresting uninspired yeah. disappointing they i like i liked it in the book a lot better even though it was 
a little simpler and more predictable. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I, th- I think that there, there was something, it was one really simple line that was easily missed. I think I missed it the first time, uh, the second time through the series, I, I, I caught it. But um, so she, she stabs him back at the campfire in like episode two yes. or something. Yeah. And, yeah. And so he sort of, he's gone for longer than he thought he would be from his, you know, group of kids. And, um, and he says that he lost control of the story. And one of the aspects too, we, we haven't talked about is the, um, the, <laughs> it's, it's a strange, it's, it's a strange feature, but there's a, uh, a graphic novel that was written by the the mm-hmm. actor who died, the King, the King Lear actor Arthur Leander, he, one of his ex wives, with um, wrote a graphic novel that has is the story that has is somehow kind of uh, parallel to a to a the 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 the, the apocalypse, the post pandemic world. It's about a yes. You know, it's, it's there's a they don't really go through the story exactly. They sort of reference it in reference at piecemeal, but there's a, uh, there's a space station, there's an astronaut, there's like, they're stranded. There's a, there's a, con- a rebellious contingent on this, uh, on this kind of like space station asteroid thing. And, um, and she only prints, I think two or three copies, one of mm-hmm. which Kirsten has the other of which mm-hmm. the prophet has, because the prophet is this, <laughs> is this actor's son, at least in the, in the series. I don't know if that was the case in, in the book. Anyways, it gets kind of convoluted to uh, sort of rehash, but um, he is sort of treating this graphic novel as a religious text in the series, mm. and he's mm. sort of telling stories from this from this religious religious text, mostly from his memory because he lost his copy of the book, yeah. and in so doing, he can kind of frame the he can he can. Uh, control the narrative frame of these kids that he's sort of become a father figure to. And when he was stabbed, he lost sort of his control over the story. And one of his sort of one of the, I don't know, I guess the, you could call them a Lieutenant of the kids. Yeah. She takes over the story and, um, and like manipulates these kids into blowing up, the, 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 these survivors, David yeah. Cross. <laughs> yeah. Um, and who, by and, the way, I got to interrupt you, yeah. Josiah. Yeah. David Cross in Arrested Development is one of like the funniest characters. I love, I love that guy. I felt like he was genuinely bad in this series. Like, I was like, what? What? That he was bad. I think all the, maybe, maybe he was juxtaposed with so many other really fine actors, but I did not understand what he was doing. Sorry to interrupt. Have I you ever throw shade on a random character? Have you ever encountered people in real life that are just you know people in the world, but they they are they present themselves like the bad actors? Like if they were if you were watching them on film, you would think that they were acting terribly. Yeah, that's yeah. sort of how I read his character. Like it wasn't. If he 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 wasn't uh, he wasn't portraying um, a uh, <laughs> he wasn't portraying like a normal person well like he was sort of portraying a a like a person who comes off like a bad actor in their everyday. Uh, oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, you know, I hadn't. That's really... a generous reading. I appreciate yeah. that. That's a generous reading. <laughs> uh, he yeah there yeah see there, there were a number of aspects to the show that I thought were just beautifully rendered just mm. absolutely mm. absolute poetry and other aspects that i thought were just like real stinkers just weak and and i i, I and that's think that's largely why it's so much fun reading the book which is a a really um um yeah it's it's a well crafted uh yeah piece of fiction and uh like pretty much across the board um and the show is exceptionally well-crafted in certain domains and at certain times, and then just completely like lo- loses the thread in uh, other places. So you've got to, yeah. I can only, I can only uh, suggest it with some uh, <laughs> caveats. With some caveats, right. I wish that it had been 
eight episodes long, maybe even six. Because I I've, I've just felt like at the end, we just started meandering. I've already said that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I feel you. Um, yeah. Anyways, just to close the loop on that, that sort of piece of the story with the, I think what the show was trying to do was paint the prophet as somebody who had a, who was, who had gotten a bad rap and the bombings weren't actually his fault because he, when Kirsten had stabbed him, he had sort of, he was AWOL for a bit. And then his group of kids kind of spun out of control. One sort of psychotic kid took over and was able to manipulate these other kids and to be in these suicide bombers. And, but yeah, it was, I, I think that's what they were trying. I think that's what the story was, um, but it was confusing. And even like, once you kind of see that, you're like, it does, it wasn't a very meaningful plot point. It just, yeah. it, w- it did, it did nothing for the story. It did nothing for the, for the prophet's arc. Um, yeah, it, it was, was pretty, it felt pretty thin. Anyways, that was, that was my, uh, one of the other, I think major changes between the book and the series was that Kirsten is um, pretty clearly in the series, but not the book, a PTSD survivor. Mm -hmm. And I think the PTSD was just like she was locked in a glass apartment without her parents in downtown Chicago while the pandemic rages through the city and she emerges from that. And she has several kind of violent experiences in which she's got to fend for herself and she makes it. But she seems to me, her character in the series as a trauma survivor who is all is so vigilant about surviving kind of at all costs I liked that about the series. It's not in the book that much, or if it is, I didn't see it. But I appreciated that in the series, her vigilance to kind of like, survival is the only option for her throughout most of the series. And part of her turn at the end of the series is she's kind of like warms up to the idea like maybe there actually is more. There is more than just survival. And Shakespeare's not just a hobby. It's not just me getting to be the captain of the ship. It actually is kind of like central to what human beings ought to be spending their time valuing. So I appreciated that about the series, her, her kind of like PTSD informed, um, character drive. Yeah, I know that that's, that was, that was one of the, um, Things like that were features of the uh, of the series that I, I thought were very poetic. I mean, now she uh, mm. um, she's sort of uh, almost play acting a uh, a. I mean, by acting in plays, she's she's uh, play acting this. You know, adherence to the survival is not enough mantra, um, while at the same time carrying her knives on stage with her every time. Yeah, um, right. And never, um, always like being hyper vigilant uh, about her herself, about everybody around her. Um, and then one of her main character transformations or evolutions towards the end is is finally letting go of her knives, this whole brace of blades that she carries with her at all times, and going on stage without her uh, without her knives. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's a uh, that's actually something I hadn't really thought of before. You mentioned that, and I yeah, I that was I I really enjoyed that too. Yeah, yeah, that was a big turn for her. Mm-hmm. Um, I really like that actress. What is the actress's name that plays Mackenzie Davis? Davis. Yeah, yeah, I really like her. I really mm-hmm. like Matilda Lawyer, who plays Kirsten as a young woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she was um, amazing. Yeah, and Gael Garcia Bernal. Arthur Leander, I think he might be Argentinian. Maybe he's Spanish. I, I, anyway, I have never seen everything that I've seen him in has been wonderful. I think he's, no, he's Mexican. He's from Mexico City, I think. Anyway, I thought he was wonderful also. Those are just some of the actors that really 
stood out to me? Any acting performances that really stood out to you in the from the series? I don't know the actor's name, but uh, Clark, I really enjoyed the uh, um, the best friend of uh, oh yeah Arthur Leander yeah of Arthur Leander yeah yeah um, Irishman right redheaded Irishman yeah 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 yeah, yeah I was, really liked him too I loved his character but yeah the um, the Kirsten as a girl what was that actress's name actress name um, Matilda Lawler. Matilda Lawler. She was yeah. awesome. That, like, she, she was, was awesome. It was, she was so good. So much fun to watch. Yeah. Yeah. Those great mm-hmm. big eyes. She just like, mm-hmm. yeah, you could just, she had so much going on beneath the surface and she was a really quiet actor. You know, I think especially mm-hmm. that's tempting for a young actor to just kind of like, you want to show everything because that you think that's what acting was. Matilda Lawyer was very subdued and really, really powerful. Yeah. Um, the use of Shakespeare in Station Eleven, I think, I think the author was really smart in choosing Shakespeare because who disputes that Shakespeare is one of the greats? No one. And he is kind of a stand-in for so many things that um, we prize in our culture. He's like the ultimate humanist as a poet dramatist. The series really used, leaned heavily on two Shakespeare plays, Lear and Hamlet. And I think those were really good choices also because they're both bleak plays. They're really bleak plays. I think Lear might be the bleakest of all of his plays, maybe aside from Titus Andronicus, in which people are eating their children baked into meat pies. You know, that's that's pretty dark. But I think next to that, probably King Lear's like, you know, the darkest of his tragedies. Did you like the way that the series used Shakespeare? Was there any, were there any like moments that you really appreciated from the kind of like staged performances of the plays? You know, as much as I, you know, uh, sort of similar to you lost the thread of the prophet's arc. So like the prophet originally comes from this community, the uh, museum of civilization that's in this airport. And uh, he leaves there as a kid and he comes back as a, you know, same age as Kirsten. So around 28 and yeah, it was a, yeah, it was it was messy how they set it up, but the actual moment where, like, he portrays Hamlet and he's sort of trying to reconcile with his mother, and um, and also kind of, you know, bury the hatchet with uh, yeah. Clark, the guy who's sort of running the um, Museum of Civilization, sort of the leader of that community, and they used that, uh, like, well, I think the 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 first scene in Hamlet, yeah, as a uh, as sort of a a context for working through their like relational like their bitterness and and, and animosity, something yeah. about that was was beautiful. One hundred percent. I I one hundred percent. They set it up very poorly, and you don't understand like the context in which that sort of that that situation emerges is is a. Uh, I thought was pretty weak, but the, like that, that moment, like that, that was, uh, for me, that, that was just outrageously beautiful. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's with these really strange abstract expressionist, uh, costumes too, that are yes. very, yes. um, sort of cobbled together from <laughs> apocalypse detritus, uh, but somehow uh-huh. are still really yeah. like elegant and otherworldly. And, um, yeah, I, I loved that. I, I, you know, maybe you remember better than I do, but I, I found that the book, it was, uh, Shakespeare was almost more incident, in, incidental in the book. It wasn't nearly as, right. as central. And in yeah. the, uh, in the series, it was, it was much, it was much more of a, uh, played a much bigger role in the narrative. I think you're right. Yeah. That's my memory. Exactly. And I agree with you the way that they kind of the prophet, the prophet is playing Hamlet and his real life mother is playing Gertrude, the mother of Hamlet. And there's a line in which Gertrude kind of suggests, you know, that um, 
Hamlet is maybe kind of like overreacting to his father's death or that he's kind of like putting on the trapping or the costume of grief. And it's those lines um, that Hamlet responds seems, madam, like she's like, you're kind of like seeming to be in mourning. Seems, madam. Nay, it is. I know not seems. Tis not alone my inky cloak, good mother. And then he goes on to talk about all the ways in which people might act full of grief. But his kind of conclusion is, you know, these are the trappings and suits of woe, but I have within which passeth show. And it is this moment where the prophet is kind of being like, you all have had me pegged as this kind of character, but that's not who I am. You know, it's not who I am. And I thought that was an exemplary part of the series. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. Really, really good. Um, I am going to say, I don't think that I can recommend the series. I do no. really recommend the book. But you you recommend the series. I, in most of my favorite films and shows, I enjoy for the uh, the 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 production value, like the the yeah. the aesthetic productions for 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 the uh, the sets, the um, the costumes, the world building. Um, yeah, like I I think I think Star Wars is a pretty terrible, like the original Star Wars series is a pretty terrible. Uh, it's just a not a very interesting story, not very well done. Mm-hmm. Um, like I, I, that's not why I, I love the original films. I love them because of the, the world building, the, um, the, the production that would into the building the sets and just the, the craft into all the models. And, um, I just, I, I, I enjoy that so, so much. My favorite movie I think is Brazil by Terry Gilliam. I Gilliam's. was just going to ask you about Brazil. <laughs> I was just going to ask you. Because that strikes me as like one of the movies that has this completely incredible immersive atmosphere world. Oh, it's so good. And it's, it's a, I, I enjoy the story. I enjoy that story a lot more um, than others, but uh, even so, like, I don't, it's kind of a slog to sit through. It's a, it's not a, it's not a, a a riveting uh, film, Um, but it's still my favorite movie. Uh, yeah, no question. It's so sumptuous to the eye. Oh, it's, it's so <laughs> sumptuous to the eye. Exactly. Right. Um, um, what so, did you think of the of Dune, the new Dune? I haven't thought about it for a little bit. I quite enjoyed it. it wasn't wasn't perfect. It felt. I mean, Dune's almost. It almost is like it's a almost like approaching a sacred text as far as like yeah, fiction yeah. can go. And so it's gonna. You're always gonna. I'm always, I, I can't imagine there would ever be a production of Dune that I didn't have some qualms about. Yeah. Um, but uh, by and large, I thought it was, I thought it was pretty, uh, pretty well done about as well done as it could have been. So about the station 11 series, I, I, I agree. I don't think I couldn't recommend it without caveats. Yeah. The, the story itself is, 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 uh, it it uh, it's flimsy enough in places that it just it kind of breaks, but the the set production the um um the world building was uh, fascinating, absolutely fascinating. I thought I thought that was immaculately done, and I yeah. I'll probably watch it again um at least at least once more, probably several more yeah. times um at yeah. some point, just because that it was such a interesting vision of a potential future. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. I'm going to close with this. Um, have you read The Road, the Cormac McCarthy book? Yes. <laughs> yes, I have. Two kind of rival views of what, you know, like a post-pandemic or a post-nuclear Holocaust world might look like. And it struck me how profoundly different these two authors' visions were. Like, Cormac McCarthy was absolutely in keeping with the rest of his work. Like, humankind, independent of kind of like the governess, governance of, um, you know, society and a somewhat neutral legal force is murderous and vile, 
to Cormac McCarthy, you know, and there are a few good people that are aiming to kind of like keep the flame alive. But otherwise, man, it is a Hobbesian vision of, you know, like humanity. And Station Eleven, uh, Emily St. John Mandel's, I think that her vision is a lot more, I think she has a more hopeful vision of humanity. Am I, is that fair? Yeah, at least if we're going to say if uh, assign percentages of, say, you know, fundamentally, I don't know if this is the best way to think about it, but fundamentally evil people versus fundamentally good people. Yeah. And yeah. then, then the, the sort of in, in, in betweeners, um, I think, uh, was it Emily St. John Mandel? Um, she would, I think, ascribe the number of fundamentally good, good people. And then sort of, sort of the kind of, you know, uh, more in between people leaning towards good is like being that proportion yeah. being much higher than Cormac McCarthy. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, I haven't, hadn't thought about those two in juxtaposition. That's really, I mean, a large part of it has to do with the, uh, um, with the nature of the apocalypse, uh, in yeah. question, you have a, a pandemic that wipes out civilization, wipes out human beings while leaving apparently animals and infrastructure in intact. That's a, that's a mm-hmm. totally different scenario than nuclear Holocaust that destroys right. everything. And a few people are able to like crawl out from the wreckage and have to, uh, have to try to survive in a completely devastated landscape and ecosystem without any, they have no resources, neither like plant nor animal that can yeah. provide any sort of sustenance in, in, the roads world. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that, that plays a, I mean, it does, that, that that's a huge, huge factor. And, um, and you know, th- there, there's a fair amount of brutality and recognition of that possibility and in, in station 11. And, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. but I think there, there's also this, uh, this kind of, uh, environment of s- certain kinds of abundance. Um, yeah. You have to work hard to survive, but still it's possible because, you know, the world is still alive. It's actually re- recovering from, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. a couple centuries of, of uh, full out industrial production. And, but there does seem to be even that notwithstanding, there does seem to be a uh, diff- very different view. A of different humanity. anthropology. Different yeah. anthropology. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Hey, Josiah, I want to thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, really Tim. fun. And I'm going to try to find been. another excuse to bring you on so yeah if you have a shakespeare hot take that you ever want to share i i think our audience would love to hear it um i want to thank everybody for listening uh as always you can get in touch with me or the other guests that i have on this show through the close reads discussion page on facebook that's our kind of parent slash cousin podcast close reads and that's an easy way to get in touch with us if you have questions about station 11 that you want to throw out there i would love to hear from you and i'm sure most of our and our listeners would love to hear from you also um the next podcast that we will do on the plays the thing is going to be a kind of something we've never done before it's just going to be about shakespeare it's just going to be a biography of Shakespeare. We've probably done between, I don't know, 12 to 15 Shakespeare plays, but we've never just talked about the man. Who was he? Where did he come from? How did he get to be this kind of world historical figure? Um, So that is coming up within the next couple of weeks. Please stay tuned with us for that. And... Yeah, we just want to thank you again for supporting the show, for listening to the show, and we want to wish you, as always, happy reading. If it be, why seems it so particular with thee? Seems, madam, nay, it is. I know not seems. It is not alone my inky cloak, good mother, nor customary suits of solemn black, together with all forms, moods, shapes of grief that can denote me truly. These indeed seem... For they are actions that a man might play, but I have that within which passeth show. These but the trappings and the suits of woe.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.